Hey, good to see you. If you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Mark. Uh, It's my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're in Romans chapter 14. Uh, You can begin to work there. We got a lot to cover. Going to cover a lot. A lot I'm not going to even get into. Uh, That'll give you some time to dig deeper on your own. Uh, But uh, as you're turning there, I was thinking, uh, anyone, anytime someone denies the the doctrine of total depravity, I tell them, hey, just go to any. Any article online, and if it has a comment section, just read that. And then they're usually convinced that total depravity is actually a thing. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this. Any, anyone see that? Or maybe you, you, you've been on Twitter. Uh, if you, you just need to go on Twitter and see uh, what people say to each other, and you're like, man, there's some darkness in people's hearts. But there's a, there's a particular subculture in Twitter that uh, particularly bothers me. It's, it's Christian Twitter. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone, anyone on Twitter? You're smart. Just my wife. Okay. So she, um, she gets on. So what, what will happen is uh, Christians from all flavors of, of the denominational and other background will, will get on. And, and sometimes every now and again, like uh, a famous, quote unquote, famous pastor or someone, someone like a, a Tim Keller will, will, will tweet literally anything. And then uh, someone will, will just jump on and, and tear him down and say, here's all the reasons you're wrong. And then other people will jump in and they'll, here's all the reasons you're wrong. And they'll just start to just make these accusations and just tear one another down more and more. And it's just an, it's an awful it's an awful space to be in really actually uh, I, I I've never liked it but I right a few weeks ago I deleted my Twitter account I was like I'm out I'm, I'm good but then uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and I was like oh, I gotta get back on and, and see what, what's going on so I'm back on Twitter uh, but but I just hate that like that that just the, the the venom that is out there the venom among brothers and sisters in Christ that it's as if um, They've never read Romans chapter 14. It's as if that they don't understand that even on Twitter, God wants you to act like a Christian. So uh, we, we get to uh, look at that a little bit this morning. But Twitter and Facebook and social media, they're, they're really just microcosms of other cultural issues that we're, we're facing in, in our world, both uh, culturally broadly, but even in the church. There, there's these kind of microcosms that um, we, we live in a time of outrage and tribalism. Like, we, we've equated uh, your, your level of outrage with stuff that you disagree with as some sort of pursuit of holiness. Like, and if, if, if someone that we normally have respect for, someone that we've uh, learned a lot from or uh, like a lot, if they say or tweet anything that maybe theologically or politically or any other way uh, kind of disagrees with where our convictions land, then we feel, we feel personally threatened. Like, oh, well, if, if, you, if you hold that position, I, I can't learn from you anymore. I, I, can't, I can't even be in that camp. And so what, what happens is we separate more and more, and we get into tighter and tighter silos and echo chambers, right? Uh, a couple of years ago, or not a, one year ago, uh, one year into the pandemic, by the way, uh, we, two years ago. So one year into the pandemic, the Barna Institute did a kind of a survey, a study, uh, and they found that uh, a year in, Christians that uh, were regular churchgoers, all that stuff, uh, a third of them had dropped out of church altogether. They're like, this is a good opportunity. We're kind of done with that place. We're, we're just, we're out. We're not going to go anywhere else. Another third uh, left of the church that they're a part of and, and went to other churches. And so really just about a third. So overall, uh, a lot of churches just are kind of decimated by just the, the fracturing and the division that has gone on in our country. But that's not true of all churches. So some churches have exploded in the last year. 
But it isn't necessarily for the right reasons, right? Like, I get together with a lot of pastors all the time, and, and we say, hey, so did, did this group of your people all go to that one same church? And they're like, yeah, that group of this, our, our people all went to that one church. And that church has exploded. And it's not because people are coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's because that church has publicly said, hey, we will be the silo for you. Come here and we all will think together. We'll, we'll raise our banners together. Whatever you want, you can find a place. You can find home. But in the end, it just fractures the church more and more. And what's so tragic about that is that's understandable that that happens in the world. But the church should be the one place, the one institution that can rise up with some transcendence and say, in spite of our dis- differences, in spite of our disagreements, there, there is a God who reigns in heaven and he is Lord of all. And we come together with people from different backgrounds and nations and beliefs and convictions on on secondary and third level tertiary matters and we worship King Jesus. That's what the world desperately needs. And this is what the Apostle Paul is is getting at here this morning in Romans chapter 14. I've said uh, before that uh, when we get together each week to kind of work through the passage together as pastors, there there are certain questions we'll ask of every text uh, to try to get to the heart of it. And towards the end, we ask this one question every time. How does this this passage, how will this sermon promote a gospel culture in our church? So it's one thing to get gospel doctrine right, and we should. And Paul has labored over that for the first 12 chapters of the book of Romans. It's one thing to get that right, but then it's another thing to take that gospel doctrine and say, this is how it is lived out. This is how we actually love one another. This is how we actually forgive and bear with one another and and live in unity together. How will this passage promote gospel? gospel culture. In fact, Romans chapter 14 and into 15 is Paul doing just that. He's doing specifically, in light of what's true of the gospel, here's how it should look in your church in Rome, Romans. This is Paul's gospel culture passage. And it's ours as well. And so uh, let's go ahead and look at it together. We're going to go through the whole thing, but I'll just read the first few verses and then pray for us and we'll work through it kind of uh, from a, a big picture view. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Romans chapter 14. We'll pick it up in verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that we can come before you now in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit that you desire to meet with us through the proclamation of your word, the conviction and confirmation of your spirit. Lord, give us eyes to see, hearts to embrace, minds to comprehend, wills to follow what you have for us in this text. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What does gospel culture look like? Paul, Paul has, uh, starting in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, he started to talk about, okay, in light of the gospel, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, lay down your lives, love one another. But now he gets very, very specific in the, in the Roman context. 
said a couple weeks ago, to understand any passage of Scripture, three questions you need to ask is, what did it mean then? Well, what is the timeless principle always? And then how can we apply it now? So the then, always, now. So let's ask the question, then. He starts off, he says, uh, as for the one who is weak in faith, he's, he's comparing weak and strong. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Or the NIV says, disputable matters. He says we should uh, welcome each other and, and, and not to quarrel or fight over disputable matters. Now, you, you, can break those, you can break matters up into three or four categories, depending on how you do it. There's essential matters that, for salvation, and Paul's been very clear about that. It's essential that we know that our justification comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. That, that's essential. Without that, we, we don't really have a religion. We don't have a church. We, we should just go, go our own way if we don't have that. So essential matters for salvation. And then the Bible lays out uh, very important matters for how you do life together in community. Well, what does church look like? What does church government look like? What do you believe about this or baptism or the Spirit? Now, there can be some disagreements there, but usually it's, it's, it's laid out in Scripture. This is what a church is going to look like. They're not essential for salvation, but they're very, very important. Important. And then we move into uh, tertiary or fourth level. I, I don't know what you say be, beyond tertiary. Uh, does anyone know that? Like secondary, tertiary? You just stop at tertiary. Okay, so third or fourth level stuff. This is, starts to get into the area of disputable matters. This doesn't mean they're not important. And it doesn't mean you don't have strong convictions on these things. You probably do. And we'll, we'll explore some of those. But, but there are some, some differences there. Sometimes it's cultural. So sometimes you just come from a different part of the country or uh, you have a different cultural, racial background or, or, or a different part of the world and you have certain convictions that were shaped and formed in you, uh, but, but the ultimately they, they don't, they're, they're disputable matters. So what's going on then? Well, well, in Rome at that time, Again, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he's trying to show them that the gospel is powerful enough to keep us unified and on mission together, Jews and Gentiles. Now, the Jewish-Gentile division culturally was massive, more than anything we have in our country. And, but Paul is still saying the gospel is strong enough to keep you together and on mission. Well, here's what was actually happening, though. The Jewish people, uh, the, the Jewish believers, by and large, they, because of 1,500 years of tradition and kosher dietary laws and otherwise, had some really ingrained cultural uh, values. And they wanted to honor the Lord. They didn't want to go into idolatry. And so in the Old Testament, they were given dietary laws to kind of set them apart from the pagan nations and not intertwine with them and go after their idolatry. And so uh, you couldn't eat pork and you couldn't have shellfish, pretty much all the delicious things you could not eat uh, if you were a good Jewish person. And you're, you're just trying to follow that. Now, uh, the gospel comes along and says Jesus has, has fulfilled the whole law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says he declares all foods clean, uh, but, but he's speaking to Jewish people that still have a really long and strong history and conviction in this area. I mean, Peter, who was with Jesus for three years, Peter heard Jesus say, I have declared all things clean. And it isn't until Acts chapter 10 when God has to basically put 
Peter asleep and bring down a sheet full of unclean food and, and say to Peter, look, Peter, no, what, what it was unclean is now clean in my sight. You can get up and eat. And he, he fights God for a while. He's like, I can't do it. Just, just understand, this was strong conviction in their life. Well, these Jewish Christians in Rome, they're like, wait, we, we, we can't do it because we just, it would really violate our conscience. We, we, we just couldn't eat, like, it's disgusting that you guys eat pig's flesh. Like, you, you come to the, the, the potluck and you have pulled pork sandwiches. That grosses us out. Like, we can't handle that. More than that, it's not just that it's pig, but, but these, these were offered up to uh, pagan idols all over the city. So what would happen is, with all the different gods and goddesses in Rome, the, the pagans would come and they, they'd make their sacrifice, not just of unclean animals, but even of, uh, of cows and, and goats. And they'd make their sacrifice and the, the, the pagan priest would take that meat, offer it up to the gods, and guess what? The gods didn't do anything with it because they're not real. And, and then they take, uh, the, take the meat out the back of the temple and they set up a little butcher shop on the back of the temple and, and you get discounted meat. Now, now, predominantly the Jewish or the Gentile Christians are like, awesome, cheaper meat. And not just meat. You, they would offer up wine to the gods and, and they would be like, hey, cheaper wine. We can get cheap meat and cheap wine and we have freedom in Christ and God is over all and Christ is Lord over all. So let's, let's fire up the pellet grill. We'll have some ribs and we're going to drink some wine. It's going to be amazing. And the Jewish people are like, the Jewish Christians are like, no, you can't do that. Now, interestingly enough, Paul calls them the weak ones. They're the weak ones in this scenario. And Paul has very strong opinions on this, but this is what makes this passage so much more interesting. He's like, you're weak because you haven't seen the full implications of the gospel. You have freedom now to, to enjoy these things. You have freedom now to drink your wine with gladness. You have all that, and you don't have to worry about where it was offered up or what it was offered to. God is God. He's Lord over all. And so uh, Paul says, uh, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And again, that, that's not what it sounds like. When I was in college, just so you know, like there was a time with me and my roommates, we were like, hey, you know, there's vegetarians and we're herbivores, uh, but what if we just became carnivores like for a week? Like, let's just eat only meat. Let's only let meat go. And we tried that for a while. It was awesome for a while, but eventually you got to move on. Uh, but it, then I met uh, Jennifer and we started dating. She's a vegetarian. I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I, just to show her, like, I, I'm down. I had a vegetarian burrito like on our second date. It was terrible. But... <laughs> But I did. I was like, see, I'm, I'm good. But eventually she realized I was a fraud. I just like to eat my meat. And so we, we got married. She's still a vegetarian. And I would quote this verse to her. Like, uh, you, you only eat vegetables because your faith is weak. And like, no, that's not, that's not what this passage means at all. I've already set up what, what it actually means. No, that there's, that there's some disputable matters. And in this case, that's what was on display. Well, so, so that's what was true then. But what about Always. And if you look down the, 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 time, the hallway of time in church history, there are, there are just unfortunately far, far, far too many ways when disputable matters come to the church and the church splits over. And it's, it's a tragedy, really. Now, there are essential matters. There, there are reasons that there are things to fight over, absolutely, but not disputable matters, not opinions. And so um, the... the, the we could give lots of examples that for reasons that churches have split and this or that, and they're, they're tragic. Well, let's talk about now. Let's talk about Redemption Parker. 
I, I thought about, hey, let's just, let's just let's open that up to the crowd. And I'm like, no, that, that, would, be, that would be wrong because we'd have a church split by, by lunchtime. So, so I don't, I don't want to just open it up to anyone. But um, let, me, let me just list some disputable matters. And again, just because they're disputable doesn't mean you don't have strong convictions on this. And it's okay. Paul's, Paul's not uh, against your strong convictions. It's how you handle them and what you do with them towards your brother and sister in Christ that matters. So let me just list a few. You're going you're gonna to hear some of these things and something in you is going to bow up. Like, oh, no, no, that's not, just, that's not a disputable matter. That's good. When you feel that, that's good because this is where Paul wants to speak into in the church at Rome and for us. Okay, so let's talk about a few. How about school choice? Should you homeschool your kids? Should you send them to public school? Should you send them to private school? Should you send your kids to boarding school? Full disclosure, we've done all four. Some of you think I'm a terrible parent now. (laughs) But you think it for different reasons across the board. So some of you have good and solid reasons to homeschool their kids. You're like, this is why, and, and you could give it, and we could say, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like this, this is where you've landed, where you can best love your, your children well. Some, some of you would um, say, no, we want, we want to be, send our kids to public school because we want to be salt and light in the culture, and we want to walk them through and navigate with them, those things, and, and that's good too. But here's what you need to know. Parents, whatever you decide, that's awesome. But it doesn't mean that the person on your left or right who's made a different choice loves their children any less than you do. This is what Paul's getting at. Let's talk about some other things. How about uh, clothing? What should we wear when we come to church? What should the pastor wear? Depending on your cultural background or where you're from, you're going to have some differences there. We're in Colorado, so we're pretty relaxed. But, but if you've come from the South, you, you might have some, some objections for, to me wearing Vans while I preach. Uh, I, back in the year 2000, I was in Okinawa and uh, had a friend. Are they, are they like building stuff back there? Um, <laughs> can you tell them we rented this whole time? Uh, thank you. Uh, I had a friend who was a, a new believer. And this, uh, this, this new believer had come from kind of a, a, a drug, alcohol background. And so he would, he would find the freedom in Christ. He would get up, get up, come roll out of bed a little bit late, like you guys showing up to church. And uh, it's Colorado, I get it. Uh, but he, he put on his sweatpants. Like, I think he just had his pajamas on, actually. He put on his flip-flops, his T-shirt, and he'd roll into the service on base. And then we had a co-worker. So that was Brandon. We had a co-worker, Charlene. She, she kind of came as a missionary kid, comes from kind of the South Southern culture. And in her mind, the way to honor the Lord was to put on your best. Like, like you go and you put on your very best. Well, one Sunday, they, they're both in service together. And, and I'm standing there. She comes up to Brandon. She's like, hey, why are you wearing that? He's like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, would you, if the general on base, if the general called you into his office, would you wear that? He's like, no. Well, if the president of the United States calls you, hey, would you be wearing that? No. She's like, well, why would you wear it to, to come and worship the king of kings and lord of lords? Like, it's not, it's not a terrible argument. And his answer was, well, I, I, I would wear this to my best friend's house. And they're both right. 
And Paul's going to go on and say, hey, what what really matters is, are you seeking to honor the Lord? And for her, she she needed to dress up and it was the way to honor the Lord for him. Man, I'm going to hang out with my best friend. And so I'm rolling in my flip-flops. And they had strong convictions on that. Let's talk about some other things. Maybe your music or your worship preference and style. Again, when, when other cultures or backgrounds come together, we, we can have a lot of judgment towards each other. Like, that's wrong. Here's the right way. These are the right songs. Those are the wrong songs. And here's the reasons. But that's a disputable matter, Paul would put. We, we could put political things in this area. Pol- politics are very important. We want you to uh, study the Bible and with your convictions vote and pursue those things. But at the end of the day, we serve a king in a kingdom that is above this kingdom. There's tertiary doctrines. Like, like what do you believe about the end times or the role of the different people on staff or, or the, the gifts of the spirit? Like we, we can have debates. We can have strong convictions on that. But, but Paul would say we shouldn't, we shouldn't divide over them. How about money? How a church spends the money? Well, what church buildings should look like? What color is the carpet? Churches have split over these things. Or how, how about how other Christians spend their money? Of course we want to encourage generosity and warn against the idolatry that comes with money. The Bible shows us that. But at the end of the day, what, what you drive or where you live, that's between you and God, Paul's going to say. How about drinking alcohol? Should, should a Christian drink or, or, or not drink? Some would say, well, I, I just think it's just wise in our culture when oh, there's so much alcohol abuse and problems and one out of every seven people uh, that, that start drinking uh, end up having some sort of problem or addiction with it. It's just wise for Christians to stay off. Like, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good argument. Others would say, no, we have freedom in Christ. In fact, in the Bible, uh, it is used as a celebration. In fact, Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine and it wasn't grape juice, by the way. Uh, and so we have freedom to do those things. These are disputable matters. How about Harry Potter? <laughs> Again, full disclosure, I've read all the books to my daughters, so we might not see you next week if that's, uh, if that's lifted up above a disputable matter to essential matter. Uh, sports involvement. How much involvement are you going to be involved in sports? How much is your kids going to be involved? Uh, of course, there's wisdom and all that, but at the end of the day, you've got to decide what is going to honor the Lord with our family. Tattoos, you could say. That could be another one. If you come from a fundamentalist background, you're going to have this kind of bent towards you if you associate with it all. You're going to have this bent towards you to take non-essential matters and lift them up to essential matters. And so all of a sudden, everything's essential. And you can go around judging people on that. Or if you come from more of a a theologically liberal background, uh, the, the problem there is that nothing's essential. Like everything's up to debate and the thing that should be essential is not essential and you miss the gospel there. So Paul wants to press into this. So that's the then, always, now. There's, there's a lot more that we could say and a lot more that we have to wrestle with. But let's j- dive back into the text. He has some instructions for the strong and the weak. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats, dis- so that's the strong one, the one who's eating, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And we'll come back to that. So he says, first of all, some instructions for the strong and the weak. If you have freedom in Christ and you're enjoying your freedom, but, but someone is standing off in your church body or gospel community and, and they disagree with your choices, the temptation is to become a Pharisee to the Pharisees. 
Like, oh, they're, they're just judging me and, and we'll get everyone on our side and we'll, we'll separate that way. Or if you're, you've got these convictions like these Jewish Christians had, like, hey, no, the Lord has said, this is what we should eat. This is the days of the week that we should worship. He'll, he'll say in verse 5, these are the festivals that we should worship and we are more faithful. They're not saying that it saves them. They just feel a little bit of self-righteousness. They feel a little bit of pride in that. And so they, um, they, they'll have a temptation to pass judgment. And he says, listen, let's not do that with each other. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If it's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He says, in the end, you and I will each give an account for our lives, and we'll give an account for everything we say or do and all the convictions we come to. And the key question in that moment is, did you do what you did to honor the Lord? Did you do what you did to have a clean conscience? Did you do what you did to love the Lord and to love others? It's where he'll go with Verse 5, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. This is about which day of the week shall we worship and, and how should we do that. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in, in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this is the end. For for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess, shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what Paul is saying is on disputable matters, let's just leave, let's just let God intervene in those things. Where God has not clearly spoken from his word into things, let's just give each other freedom to make those decisions ourselves. Now, there needs to be a clarification here. When the Bible says, do not judge, it's speaking, do not judge where God has been silent. It's not, do not judge where God has already spoken clearly. So, for example, if my friend, uh, we'll call him Bob, if my friend Bob comes and says, hey, uh, confesses, I'm having an adulterous affair in my marriage. And I say, well, you need to repent. You need to confess that both to God and your wife, and you need to turn from your sin. And he says, hey, the Bible says, do not judge. Only God can judge me. So no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually calls us to judge and for the good of our brother and for the good of the church to judge where God has clearly spoken. And in this area, God has clearly spoken. So I owe it to you to confront you. But, but what if we're hanging out later and we're at a restaurant and I order a glass of wine? Bob says, you shouldn't drink wine. It's wrong to drink wine. Now it's a disputable matter. And this is where it applies. No, you, you shouldn't judge. This is between me and God. So you understand the difference there. Well, well, he goes on and he gives some more instruction. Paul is clearly going to put himself in the camp of the strong, but that's all the more reason why what he says to the strong is important. For, because probably in a gospel-centered church like we're at, most of us would fall in the category of the strong. And nevertheless, he's got some strong words for us. Look at verse 13. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So he, he says to the weak one more time, hey, renew yourself to the gospel. Understand your righteousness and your right standing with God comes from the gospel, not by what you do and what you eat or when you worship. But then he turns to the strong. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean if any, for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So Paul is just saying, look, I know it's okay to eat those things. I know it's okay to drink those things. He's, he's not shy about teaching what's true. And even still, he says, listen, but I don't want to cause my brother or sister to stumble. Michael Bird who's a theologian, he says, what we begin to see here is there's more at stake than stake. There's more at stake than stake here. There's more at stake than you just holding on to your freedom here. here. Here's what he says about this passage. He says, Paul is bent on stressing that Jesus is Lord of the weak, teetotaling, Sabbatarian, vegan Jews, and the strong, wine-sipping, Saturday-shopping, bacon-munching Gentiles. If God has justified them, they cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, they cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. If everyone calls him Lord, they must call each other brothers and sisters. If God has accepted them, they must accept each other. Amen. And I wish I could write like that. Nevertheless, let's jump in. Uh, So he's saying, listen... There's more at stake than stake here. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying more important than your ability to drink your wine and eat your pulled pork sandwiches is your brother or sister for whom Christ shed his blood for. It's more important to love them than to love your food. Like food is more important, uh, it's less important than your brother or sister. Christ died for these people. And so we should keep that in mind. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, strong brother, strong sister, you have freedom in Christ. You you can do a lot because Christ has paid it all. This is amazing. It's freedom. But listen, it's not a freedom if you can't lay it down for the sake of loving your brother or sister. It's only a new bondage. It's only a new idolatry. I'm not going to give up my freedom. I'm not going to lay that down because it's mine and God gave that to me. No, no. If it causes your brother or sister for whom Christ died to stumble, then you don't really have freedom in that area. One one pastor said this week on this passage, he said, it's possible to have fat heads and small hearts. Paul doesn't want us to know all the right things and not live like it. It's possible to have fat heads and, and small hearts. He's trying to get these stronger brothers to just say, hey, because of what God has done, While we were still sinners, Christ died for me and for my brothers and sisters. On these disputable matters, I can leave them at home. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. 
Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. That's a really strong language that Paul is employing here. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. How, how would this food destroy the work of God? Well, the issue is that these, some Christians have these freedoms that they've held on to so tightly that it's causing a division, a disunity in the church. And the mission of the church is for the glory of God and the joy of all people to go out. You want to see a church that is off mission? I'll show you a church that is divided over disputable matters. When there's only infighting, there's no mission, there's no work of God proceeding into the world. And so we leave those to the side. Verse 21, it is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's, he's basically saying, let's, let's have clean consciences between us and the Lord, and let's not bind the consciences of our brothers and sisters on disputable matters. Now, notice he says, if you do anything that causes your brother to stumble, you should stop doing that. There are things that we can do that can legitimately, because of their background, their past, their culture, uh, lead them to think and go down paths that lead to their destruction. So, so, for example, if, if you have a brother or sister that uh, has have a history of, of, of alcohol or drug abuse and, and they see you drinking and you're always just drinking around them, in their mind, they, they cannot dissociate their past life and their past idolatry with what you're doing. And it tempts them to just ponder and think on, uh, maybe they could do that again. Maybe they could go down that path. And in the end, it leads to their destruction. Not your destruction, but their destruction. And Paul is saying, because you love this person, And they've made this known to you. The way to exercise your freedom best is to lay it down in that case. But on the other hand, Paul is also warning against what I'd call the professional weaker brother. The professional weaker brother is someone that doesn't themselves struggle with these things, but they see it as their goal, as their job in a church to kind of go around and be the curmudgeon. Go around and just kind of judge everyone. Hey, you shouldn't do that because someone else might stumble. You should not do that. Like, hey, you shouldn't, you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't smoke a cigar. Oh, I'm sorry. Does my smoking the cigar kind of lead you to idolatry and temptation in your own life? Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about other people. Well, you need to stop. We don't need professional weaker brothers in this place. We don't need people just feeling like it's their job to make sure no one has fun in the church. That's not, that's not the role. Paul would say, you need to repent. You need to grow up. And walk in the freedom of Christ and let other people walk in that freedom as well. But all this is really hard. True freedom leads to love, though we're called to lay down our, our, our freedom when necessary. So how do we do this? How do we actually walk this out? Well, Paul begins to explain in the next few verses. He's going to actually show us uh, four things. I'll I'll just say them here. Uh, He's going to show us the way that we can actually, as a church, on mission together, walk in this motivation and this power is the example of Christ, the power of Christ, the glory of Christ, and the welcome of Christ. Let's, Let's look at the first one, the example of Christ. Chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a quote from Psalm 69. It's about the Messiah coming, laying down his rights, laying down his freedom, and taking on the pain and the suffering that you and I deserve. 
Or as Paul has said in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we, as brothers and sisters, we look at Jesus' example in the gospel. He went to the cross. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus laid down his freedom and entered in to rescue you and me, we can love each other like that by his example. The second one we see is the power of God. Paul begins to pray the power of God into these believers' lives, into our lives. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We can't do this in our own strength. We, We should be praying for each other, praying for ourselves that we would live with such harmony to the glory of Christ, which is the next one. The glory of God, verse 6, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of seven, verse, chapter 7, or verse 7, sorry, for the glory of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been rescued and redeemed, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, your modus operandi for life is what will glorify God? In this moment, in this situation, in this relationship, in my job, in every sphere of my life, the Holy Spirit is all about the glory of God and he wants you to be all about the glory of God. And he's saying predominantly what that looks like in the church is for you not to focus so much on yourself, but to focus on your brother and sister. It's others focused. That should be the litmus test of how we interact with each other. How can I best love you? That's what I'm going to do. And then finally, it's the welcome of God. Don't miss this. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another. That's genuine fellowship, worship, life together, community. Do that with one another. Why? Just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Back in 14, verse 1, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Verse 3, for God has welcomed him. This is amazing. God who is holy perfect, righteous, and just, left heaven in glory, came and he has welcomed us. People that didn't deserve welcome, people that were enemies and rebels have been welcomed into the family of God. So, so if you can imagine Jesus walking through these doors and all that have trusted in Jesus by grace through, grace through faith have been declared sons and daughters of the king, he goes up to them and he gives them a hug and he says, welcome, welcome. And he's just going to everyone. He's welcoming them and welcoming them. He comes to you and he welcomes you. And he welcomes her. And we're going to say, well, I can't welcome that person. I can't have fellowship with that person. Because on this disputable matter, they disagree. We're actually calling God's judgment of welcoming that person into question. The audacity of that. If God has welcomed someone into the kingdom of God, it is, it is on us to welcome them likewise. So how do we do this? How do we actually live this out? Verse 19 gives us a clue. Michael Bird says, verse 19 of chapter 14 is his favorite verse in all of the book of Romans. He says, this, this verse should be read aloud before every church gathering. This verse should be on the, your marquee if you have a church, I'll say. This verse should, uh, maybe some people, if, you're, if your conscience allows you, should be tattooed on your arm. This is the verse. Imagine if this was the the filter by which we gathered in our gospel communities on Sundays and whenever we met with other believers. Here's what it is. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Imagine if that's just how everyone uh, that that is a follower of Christ entered into this room this morning. I'm going to pursue 
whatever makes for peace. But notice it's active. You, you don't have to be active. You don't have to be active to have disunity in the church. Second law of thermodynamics, right? Things go from a state of order to disorder. That's true of the church. But you do have to be active to uh, pursue the building up and the unity of the church. It takes work. It takes intentionality to do that. And so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He says it again in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So, so are you a strong brother or sister in Christ? Have you realized the full freedom that you have in the gospel? That's awesome. That, that's our, our goal for everybody. But if you're strong, then the word to you is don't give an offense. If you don't give out any offense, then, then there's not going to be any disunity in the church. Seek to serve and love the other. But what if you're the weak person? He would say you need to grow up in the gospel. And don't take an offense. You don't have to always be offended by everybody. You can choose to to let things go because God has let things go in your own life. And so if we don't give an offense, we don't take offense, there's a double wall against disunity in the church. So we love one another. We lay down our lives. On disputable matters, we defer to one another in love for the glory of God and the joy of all people. We want to be a church that is Christ-centered and Christ-like. Christ-centered is orthodoxy. We want to be a church that is not afraid to study what is true, proclaim what is true, and is right. But Christ-like is orthoproxy, right living. In light of the gospel, we want to live and love like Christ lived and loved among us. Both of these things is what this passage is calling us to. So, Redemption Parker, let's leave disputable matters at home. Let's defer to one another in love. Let's actively seek unity. Let's, let's really come into the room together and say, how can I build someone up this morning? And then let's marvel at the goodness of God as it goes out for the joy of all people and for his glory. Let's pray for that in. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, thank you that you are able to make us stand. Thank you that you are able to keep us together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give us each a sensitivity to know how to rightly apply this word to our lives right now. Show us that are strong where we need to lay down our freedom for the sake of our brother or sister who you loved and died for. Show us where we're weak, where we need to grow up in the gospel and to not take offense on behalf of another brother or sister. Lord, help us to be a church that is unified so that the work of God proceeds in our lives, in our town, and in the nations. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.